0: Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. This is the MLW Radio Network.
1: Welcome to WHW Monday. Tony Shimani and Conrad Thompson talking about the great years of world championship wrestling the nwa and jim crockett promotions and now let's go to the ring here's your co-host hey hey it's conrad thompson
0: hey hey it's conrad thompson and you're listening to what happened when monday right here on the mlw radio network in the master of ceremony mr tony shivani tony what's going on man how are you
1: Conrad, good to be talking to you this week. Uh, it, it's great to be with all of our uh, all of our listeners and everybody who has uh, said some kind things about what happened when. We've got a heck of a staff that works on this with Conrad and our our buddy out of uh, Nova Scotia, Matt McGrath. And, of course, little salt off Runt, Dave Silva, who also helps us out as well. I thought I'd get uh, that all out of the way for our staff, and I appreciate being with you. It's great to be here. I want to tell you right now, that I have kind of fallen in love with wrestling again. Wow. Thanks to, uh, thanks to you, thanks to all the fans, because I get to go back and watch some of our old stuff. Now, let me say this. We're going to talk about 1996 today, and that was a little bit before I became this over-the-top hyping shill. So I'm sure as we get towards 1999 and 2000, I won't enjoy myself as much as I had the last couple of weeks. So There.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, 1996 was one of my favorite years to be a wrestling fan, especially, you know, post summer. You know, things started to really cook when you saw uh, Razor and Diesel leave the WWF and come to WCW. Then you had the Hulk Hogan turn over the summer. The NWO was really on fire. So by November of 96, my fandom is really at an all-time high. And 97 is probably my favorite year in wrestling. So we're almost there with this pay-per-view, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about a lot of things, WCW 1996. Uh, When I first mentioned World War III to you, Tony, what's the first thing you think of?
1: World War III? Actually, now, when I go back and look at it, or even before then, after I've looked at it, I have a different opinion of it now.
0: Okay, before you looked at it, before you watched it this week and caught back up and you just had in your mind's eye the memories of World War III, 95, 96, 97, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, what, what was your takeaway? What was your immediate knee-jerk reaction?
1: Three-ring clusterfuck. Wow. Uh, that was my immediate reaction. Now... I think about Piper and Hogan and that angle that they shot there, which I thought was a pretty decent angle, because Piper was just a tremendous at whatever he did. So, and uh, I also looked at the show and and thought about the the people and my friends who have passed away. Mm-hmm. That kind of got me down, like obviously Dusty Rhodes and Lee Marshall, uh, and the declining health of Bobby the Brain Heenan. Uh, Eddie Guerrero, who has passed on, watching Chris Benoit and Nancy walk out uh, during the uh, World War III was kind of tough to watch, um, and it, it reminds me about life. I don't want to drag everybody down and how it changes and how in just not not that many years. I mean, we're talking what twenty-one years that things have changed. So, uh, but uh, and I, a lot of things happened at World War III. And, and and damn, I, I liked a lot of the stuff that went on during World War III. And I told you this before we uh, started recording here today that, you know, Conrad, I liked World War III. And you said, man, I got to roll on that.
0: Yeah, let's, because, uh, let's start rolling tape for sure. Because <laughs>
1: because apparently you didn't,
0: right? Well, no, it's not necessarily that I didn't. But this is one of those universally panned concept pay-per-views. Okay. And, you know, I want to talk, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it more uh, in the future, just some of the different creations that happened under Bischoff's watch. But right. do you remember World War Three as a concept being a Bischoff idea?
1: Uh, I remember it being a, a, a concept for the booking committee, uh, and Eric would approve all of that. I don't think it was actually a, a Bischoff idea. Eric wanted new ideas, something different on pay-per-views. And come on, let's face it. Uh, You had to do something different than the regular wrestling that you did on Monday Nitro.
0: Can I can I play conspiracy theorist for a minute? Yeah, you always do. (laughs) It feels like at the time you guys were running two rings once a year for the War Games pay per view, which was typically Fall Brawl in September. Yeah, and now it might feel a little, you know, silly to come back with a one-month buffer for October, and then in November, just have two rings. So maybe the thought is, well, let's add a third ring so it looks even bigger. But most importantly, let's beat the WWF to the punch. If their Royal Rumble is in January with 30 folks, well, let's do ours in November, even bigger than our War Games, with three, guys, three rings, and let's do 60 folks. Let's do twice as many. Do you think there's because now that in hindsight may sound a little silly? No, it's but, not silly, but at the time, there was such a competition between the two promotions, it was very much anything you can do, I can do better. Uh, exactly. Well, so, what do you think about that? It, do you think there was any sort of counter programming to hey, let's do the big battle royal before the WWF can?
1: No, that's right. I, I agree with all of that. That's exactly what happened. Uh, I think on a a previous edition of of what happened when we talked about us uh, trying to copy and do things like the WWF, it's even like, you know, I, uh, Conrad, as you probably know, and of our listeners know that I do, I've been doing baseball for many, many years. Right. Baseball now has gotten into this thing with doing a lot of shifts, infield shifts. Uh, They got a lot of stats now, a lot of uh, data that, they can, like Ryan Howard plays for us here in the minor leagues, and when Ryan bats, the shortstop goes on the second baseman side, the second baseman goes in the outfield. <clears throat> and what happened in baseball is one team started to do it, and it started to work. The second team said, we're going to use that, but we're going to make it better. We're going to try to be better. The third team said, we're going to do that, and we're going to try to make it even better. The fourth team said, well, now we got a lot of data that will make it even better. And now they shift sometimes with every different pitch. So what I'm saying, there was a lot of, there's been a lot of baseball, as the old quote would be, uh, say that Jim Ross used to say, monkey see, monkey do. All right. Uh, that's the way it was in wrestling back then. I always thought that they kind of set the standard, they being the WWE, and we just tried to follow suit. So we tried to make it bigger and better. There was no question that World War Three was an attempt to be a bigger and better Royal Rumble in my eyes.
0: Well, to me it sounds like a recipe for disaster when you've got 60 guys inside of three rings with six commentators. I mean, there's no way you can keep your eye on the ball there. You as a as a uh, as a viewer right? Yeah, I mean when you've got when you've got your big screen fired up to watch this and then you've got three little screens within it. And you've got six guys talking over the top of each other and 60 guys. That, to me, just seems like a recipe for disaster.
1: Well, video-wise, it was a recipe for disaster, but but I can tell you what is not a recipe for disaster and is a great way to bring some of the great recipes home with you, Conrad. And you know what that is? Well, I hope it's blueapron.com. That's exactly right. Remember, and we, we've said this so many times on, on our broadcast. That not all, not all ingredients are created equal. Because what you get with Blue Apron, you get high quality, fresh ingredients. You know where your food comes from. And we've been using Blue Apron at the Shivani household now for about, well, almost three months now. And it's completely changed the way that we approach food, the way that we eat. We eat fresher food. Lois and I have, you ready for this? <laughs> Lois and I have together cooked food in the kitchen together with Blue Apron.
0: It's, it's, uh, it's, it's not only strengthening family bonds, it's making right. miracles happen. It's blueapron.com forward slash Tony. And uh, on there, you'll see all kinds of really fun upcoming meals. They've got uh, beef, teriyaki, beef teriyaki stir fry with sugar snap peas and lime rice, baked spinach and egg flatbread with sauteed asparagus and lemon aioli, Three cheese and baby broccoli stromboli with tomato and oregano dipping sauce. Crispy salmon and roasted potato salad with pickled mustard seeds. You've got all the really hot stuff and you don't have to worry about, I don't know how to make this. Everything shows up exactly the way you need it to. Now they've got it all measured out. They've got the recipes perfect. All you need to do is sit it and get cooking. Uh, It's pretty easy. It's affordable. It's got great variety and it's very flexible. So if you want to customize some things on your menu... You can do that. You don't just have to have them go ahead and do everything for you. And best of all, maybe at least to me, they guarantee the freshness. I can't imagine the disappointment of thinking you have everything, you open up the refrigerator and realize you need something else, or maybe even worse, you had it, but now it's out of date. It's no good. That will never happen at blueapron.com forward slash Tony. And we've even got a special offer right now, don't we, Tony? Yes,
1: we do. Make sure you check out this week's menu. You get your first three meals free. That's first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com forward slash Tony. Comrade, I mentioned that uh, Lois and I have worked together now in the kitchen to prepare these meals. And some of the items that you you just mentioned are are just very, they're wonderful items that I never had eaten before. Right. Okay, so it's kind of changed the way that we've eaten uh, and changed the way that we approach food at at the house. Uh, Because normally... When Lois would say, what do you want to eat? And I would say, a hamburger and french fries. That's now changed now. Uh, and we we really get excited when the Blue Apron box comes to the house. Well. It comes prepackaged. Everything is there. It only takes about 40 minutes or less to prepare the food. So that's, that's another plus as well. So anyway, that's blueapron.com forward slash Tony. Three free meals, free shipping. Your first three are free by going to that website.
0: Check it out, man. I don't know why you wouldn't. I mean, it's hard to beat free. And hey, if you don't like it, don't keep using the service, but give it a shot. Support the show and uh, try something new. You're going to dig it. It's blueapron.com forward slash Tony. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And I wish there was a better way to cover this pay-per-view today, but we're going to do our best, man. Now, let's kind of set the stage, so to speak. Uh, There's been something like 23 weeks in a row now that Nitro has beaten Raw. And the the competition is at a fevered pitch. So let's briefly mention that on the other channel, you've got an Undertaker-Mankind feud uh, that you're heading into Survivor Series with. Bret Hart has just come back. He is into a feud with Stone Cold Steve Austin, uh, Rocky Maivia, uh, a little newcomer who they had high hopes for. He had just debuted at the Survivor Series. Uh, Flash Funk, the former Two Cold Scorpio, also making his debut there at the Survivor Series. And then in the main event on that Survivor Series card, you've got Shawn Michaels taking an L against Sid Vicious. It's a big deal for them to have a heel champion, and they've got one that night, although New York treated him like a baby face. And they were off to the races. Uh, so this is kind of the WCW answer to Survivor Series as far as time-wise, but as far as concept-wise, It really is their version of the Royal Rumble. It's World War 396 available now on the network. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. Uh, It's fun just to kind of get in your way back machine and see some of the matches that were on here. Uh, The first match on the card, which I'm sure we're going to cover is Ultimo Dragon Rey Mysterio. So, you know, man, you're off to some, some hellacious matches. If that is your start, Uh, or at least that was the way I, I kind of forgot that was even on this show. And when I saw that this this is the way we're starting, I'm like, man, how underrated is this roster in 1996? It seems like you guys have every major talent in the world right here, Tony.
1: Yeah, we got a lot of major talent, and here's you know you talked about the the ratings war and how uh, WCW was winning at that time. A lot has to be said, and I think the the a new show Nitro basically, uh, plus the fact that Hall Nash Hogan. Savage, Piper shows up, all of the big stars that were made big stars by the WWF were showing up on our show, and that's one of the reasons, maybe one of the main reasons, that we won the ratings war at that time, because people would tune in to see who's going to show up next. There was even a comment by Bobby Heenan during this pay-per-view that said, well, we got to tune in to Nitro because you never know who's going to show up, and be somebody new this week. So that brought a lot of viewers in, I think, I, and I think you would agree, Conrad. You would. Uh, the ratings. There was an actual war going on, and the war was, who are we going to steal from the WWE next?
0: No, for sure. Yeah. Uh, the show opens with you, Dusty, and Bobby, and uh, you say a few times here there is not a seat to be found, which yeah. is true. But Meltzer would report the show was a successful promotion, drawing a turn-away crowd of ten thousand three hundred and fourteen fans of which 7018 were paid for a gate of $118,000. The show itself was first announced as a sellout one day in advance, but they managed to open up 1,300 more tickets on Sunday, which then quickly went sold and turned away several hundred at the door. So this seems like a huge, uh, you know, feather in the cap for WCW, but only in WCW fashion do they cost themselves a boatload of cash. Here's what they did. A local promotion in Norfolk in which every person who ordered the Halloween Havoc pay-per-view was supposed to be able to get two free tickets to World War III. The problem is that more than 3,000 people in Norfolk bought Halloween Havoc, a number far more than estimated, which meant the potential was there for for them to have to serve basically 6,000 free tickets in a 10,000-seat arena. As it turned out, only half that many were serviced, but it obviously held down the final gross and paid attendance by 20%. Uh, do you remember this promotion? This is the first time I heard of something like this. And I'm probably the last because this seems yeah. like, holy shit. Who's that deal with that? have been do you think? Well, that way that would have been the marketing
1: department, uh, the promoters and Eric Bischoff all together. And Eric approved up, you know, signed off on all this stuff. He didn't come sure. up with all the ideas, sure, but he, he would sign off on all this stuff. Uh, but, but again, you know, Eric, and, and if you go back to uh, Eric's book, you know, he was, uh, house shows and the gates did not concern him at all. What he worried about was TV ratings and pay-per-view buys. So for him, and I understand uh, <laughs> there was potential for a lot of money to be left on the table there, that never bothered him. He thought that the house show business was done, this was all just a big TV show, bring the fans in to make it look exciting and big and what we draw is what we draw.
0: I mean yourself coming from the old Jim Crockett Promotions era. Can you imagine a scenario where if you bought Starcade you got free Great American Bash tickets? Yeah.
1: Especially in 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 listen Norfolk, Virginia was one of our top towns.
0: Yeah, and, and you guys are you know, are hotter than a cap gun right now. I mean, you've got an opportunity here to make a bunch of cash. You've won 23 weeks in a row. You've got the hot angle. You've got big pay-per-views. You're selling a shit pile of merch. To me, it just seems like, what are we doing? Why do we think we have to give stuff away here? People are lining up to pay it. I mean, even in the report here, they open up 1,300 tickets day of, sell them out. There are house shows that the WWE runs now where they can't sell 1,300 tickets with three months advance.
1: Yeah, it's hard to compare uh, drawing a house back then to drawing a house now. The way the wrestling business is gone, but yeah, I just, I just kind of rolled my eyes and said, "Let's let's go do TV, and not worry." I, I couldn't, and we heard all this stuff. I heard all this stuff all the time, all the things that I did, did disagreed with being old school crockett, right? But but I thought, I what the hell can I do, right? A- and and maybe that was my mistake. Maybe I should have spoken up more. And and, I, and I, go, I go through this in my mind all the time. I was brought in by Jim Hurd in 1990 as an executive producer. And I basically did not act like one many times. I did not stand my ground and say, we shouldn't be doing this, or go in and say, that's wrong. Which, in reality, if you're the boss, you probably want to hear at times. Sometimes some bosses do, some bosses don't. I never was combative. I never disagreed with the boss ever. I just went and did what what I was told to do. And if there was something that I didn't agree with uh, as far as running a house show or booking something or an angle, I never said, hey, wait a second. I don't think that's going to work. I just said, "Okay, let's let's do it. I, I just was very passive. My fault i don't think I don't think any of my decisions would have changed the the direction of wCW or the fortunes, but that's in reality the way I was
0: um you mentioned a minute ago your producer title I was curious about this because on the credits uh, for this actual show it lists you and Keith Mitchell as the supervising producers obviously you're doing commentary for some of this too How would your duties be different from Keith Mitchell here?
1: Uh, my duties were different because I was I was kind of a supervising producer for WCW, and uh, not necessarily this pay per view. You know, I I I, I, w- I would advise members of the booking committee or the bookers on on things that we could do and we couldn't do. But Keith was more of a supervising producer in that he was in the truck, right? And I was not. I was kind of a supervising producer on a lot of the shows that had been pre taped, like. You know, we're WCW Saturday night now, you know, when when Nitro uh, got hot, uh, it became the focus of everything that we did, and WCW Saturday night was kind of lost in the shuffle. Uh, I was in charge of WCW Saturday night, a supervising producer there. So that was just a list of people who worked for WCW, basically. And they, uh, being the production department, put me as a supervising producer but as you know, as we went on down the road, I was no longer listed in the credits. Uh, and I'm talking about like 99, 2000. Right. They stopped listing me in the credits.
0: Well, since we're talking about credits, uh, there was a heading in this show that said Peachtree Post. And there was yeah. a lady named Jennifer Schiavone. Who is Jennifer Schiavone and what is Peachtree Post? Peachtree
1: Post was a post-production company. Uh, that edit that uh, that we used to edit things together, you know, as we went on later on in uh, in the years and we started making money, we we had our own production facility. We had a a very small production facility at the CNN Center, which was a compared to what the WWE had. And what I uh, witnessed at Titan Towers or Titan Sports back then, we had a little cracker box piece of shit production facility, uh, which couldn't handle everything. So we moved some of our production to Peachtree Posts, uh, and then, of course, when we got big, we built our own facility, you know, out of downtown Atlanta, which was a very nice facility. We put a lot of money into it, um, and that was obviously uh, being led by Eric Bischoff. The Jennifer Shivani thing was just kind of a rib. <laughs> it was. I may be. I may be one of the only. I mean, my family, and and I've got. Uh, Four of my five kids live in uh, the Atlanta area. We may be the only Shibanis in Atlanta.
0: Yeah, that's why I thought this is, yeah. you know, pretty random here. Yeah, it's a rib. So let's talk about uh, the first matchup here. It's Ultimo Dragon, uh, fresh off of winning the uh, J Crown, and he's uh, got Sonny Ono in tow, and he's going to be challenging Rey Mysterio Jr., or defending his title, rather. They go nearly 14 minutes, and uh, I know you have always been critical on this show of Lucha Libre, but I enjoyed this match, Tony. What did you think? I enjoyed it, too. However. Oh, God. Here (laughs) we go. However, in about the the 53rd false finish. I knew you were going to say something about this. Off of a good move, I'm thinking, all right, guys, what the fuck? Nothing
1: means anything anymore. Sorry, it's old school. I understand that. But we had so many false finishes that... But the good news is that both guys could perform. Mysterio was tremendous. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty apparent why Mysterio had bad knees. <laughs> oh, yeah. Some of, the, some of the shit that he did. And it was acrobatic, high-flying stuff that was very entertaining. The fans popped with all the, the false finish. But as we got along in the match... It was pretty apparent that well, they're just going to get all their shit in before they finally do a finish. Uh, I liked it, but again, it's 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 not my flavor, if you know what I'm saying.
0: Dave Meltzer it has- gave it four and a half stars, and the readers of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter voted it the best match on the show, and I, I, I can't think of another way to argue that. I, I would agree that... Ray Mysterio Jr. and Ultimo Dragon is by far the best match here. And four and a half stars is high praise from Dave Meltzer. So if you haven't seen this, or maybe you haven't seen it in a long time, I encourage you to go watch it. It's the very first match on the pay-per-view. Ultimo Dragon and would ultimately pin Ray Mysterio Jr. in about 14 minutes. Uh, this is a combination of every belt in the world, or so it seems here. Uh, there are nine title belts as a part of this um j crown championship it's pretty clear to me that ultimo dragon would be the guy who was kind of dictating the pace of this it seemed more like an ultimo dragon match than a ray mysterio jr match uh we have not as fans heard nearly as much about ultimo dragon as we have ray mysterio and i'm sure we'll cover ray a lot more on this show in the future do you have anything you can share with us about working with uh ultimo dragon
1: no okay I just called his matches.
0: Never had any sort of interactions with him? He no, just came out and did his thing? No, at all. I had a lot more reaction with
1: Ray. Uh, Ray was a very nice young man. And I was thinking about this when I saw him wrestle. Uh, and, boy, you're going to take this one and run. I thought he was a very, very handsome young man. Who can and, argue and I, that? And I often thought, why, and I understand with, with Rey Mysterio and him and the Luchadors, I always thought back back then, why doesn't he wrestle with the mask off? He's a good-looking kid, uh, and and just a, a nice, pleasant. Always had a great smile, uh, and always did cra- crazy things that I would shake my head at. A lot of those in this match, but I didn't have a I didn't have much dealing with the Ultimo Dragon at all.
0: That's a shame. I've always been an Ultimo Dragon fan, and I was hoping to hear a little bit more about him. What about Sonny Ono? Sonny Ono was one of the more controversial characters, maybe because of the way he left the company and some of the accusations on the way out, which I'm sure we'll cover uh, a little later. But last week, we covered Uncensored 95. He was the special guest referee for the very, very uh, highly anticipated martial arts match with Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Ming. I mean, talk about a barn burner. And Sonny Ono is there as a ref. But here, he's kind of a heel, almost stereotypical uh, Asian tourist walking around, taking pictures, snapping photos, and being an advocate for the Ultimo Dragon. Uh, What was Sonny Ono's relationship like with the boys, the office? Uh, How was he perceived by everyone? Uh, Did you have any fun interactions with Sonny Ono?
1: Sonny and I got along quite well. Uh Sonny was always perceived as a good friend of Eric Bischoff's, and that got him some heat with the boys. Uh, never got any heat with me because I, I had just ca- casual reaction with him. Uh, and uh, he was outspoken about a lot of things that happened uh, in WCW. And like everybody else in his position, he wanted to move on up in the company and and, and do well. I thought he was a, a stereotypical Asian big money guy, and, and Heenan and I talked about that during the course of the of the match where I said, you know, there's a deal that went down, and you owe him money, and he's got a lot of money and backing up Ultimate Dragon. Uh, so uh, there was no problem with me and Sonny Ono, but, but I know there was some controversy that I want to get to later on about him leaving the company.
0: Let's talk a little bit about what you just said right there because – uh, I've always been under the impression that it was Ultimo Dragon, but now I just heard you again refer to him as Ultimate Dragon. Yeah,
1: tomato tomato, right? Okay. I mean the the the, the, Kill, the Kill graphics bossy. got yeah, it. The, the the graphics showed him as Ultimate Dragon. Uh, our ring announcer Dave Penzer called him Ultimate Dragon, and I think I slipped between Ultimate Dragon and Ultimo Dragon. Uh, during the course of the match, I didn't know why he was listed as Ultimate Dragon, so I just kind of went with it. Uh, the that, may, com- that that may have been a WCW clusterfuck, as also as far as I know. I think which we whole, had
0: plenty of. I think the whole pay per view is perceived as that. When you look at the uh, December second, ninety six edition of the Observer, uh, the readers of the Observer gave it a ten point nine percent thumbs up, an eighty point four percent thumbs down. And an eight point seven percent thumbs in the middle. And Tony, based on your testimony earlier, it sounds like you're of the mindset this is a thumbs up show.
1: Yeah, I, I look. There's a lot of things that went wrong with this show, but number one, Ultimo Dragon and Rey Mysterio Jr. was a great, as we say, curtain jerker. Sure, great uh, match. The uh, the angle I thought between the NWO and Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper. I thought was very well done.
0: All right, we'll get there. Let's talk about what's next up, though. It's Chris well, Jericho, I, I, and I, go
1: ahead. I I understand, but I want to tell you why I think the show was great. I, I thought the uh, I thought the Colonel Parker and uh, and Sister Sherry uh, little match was tremendous. I'm telling you the the commentary by the American Dream Dusty Rhodes on that match was to me two thumbs up and even though at the end we'll talk about it even though that the three the three uh, shots didn't work i thought the the way they finished it out was pretty good so i liked it and maybe that's the reason maybe because i liked it is one of the reasons that wcw went down i don't know i'm not going to blame myself for everything but go ahead second match next match
0: uh it's a one arm behind my back match uh which is Crazy, Uh, But that's what we're doing here, and Chris Jericho would defeat referee Nick Patrick after eight minutes uh, with a uh, super kick in a match where Jericho had one hand tied behind his back. I thought that given the circumstance here, I mean, really process this from Jericho's standpoint, and I know Nick Patrick comes from a wrestling family, and he's been in a wrestling ring forever, Uh, so it's not fair to just completely discount him, but let's put it in perspective Jericho is is performing on pay per view against a referee with one arm tied behind his back. They go eight minutes and manage to make it pretty damn watchable.
1: Yeah, I thought Nick uh, Nick Patrick did a pretty good job of selling some of that shit, didn't he?
0: Yeah, I mean he took I, some good bumps. I, I know that you know he he had as we said, a, a wrestling pedigree, but he had great facial expressions. He did a fine job of taking bumps. It exceeded expectations when you hear on the surface, Jericho's wrestling a referee with one arm tied behind his back. I thought overall it was a pretty entertaining, uh, entertaining segment, and I think it's a testament to how talented Nick Patrick is, but how underrated uh, Chris Jericho is as well.
1: Yeah, we kind of made Chris Jericho kind of a Van Halen rock star type character, Uh, a Lionheart Chris Jericho. But I I agree that it was a good match. And of course, this was all part of, you know, Nick Patrick being on the take. Right. uh, And uh, Chris Jericho telling him that he could wrestle with one hand behind his back. So now let me ask you this, Conrad. We have a very good opening match and we have match number two that you say was pretty darn good. I mean, it. For what it was, it worked out pretty well.
0: Well, you know, I do do think that you could have put... I mean, Chris Jericho, I I think you would have to agree, has gone on to become, you know, one of the great success stories in wrestling. I mean, he is a -a one-of-a-kind, top-tier, Class A performer. And here he's in the second match against a referee. So I do feel like it is a little bit of a waste when you've got 60 really talented wrestlers that are performing in the main event. On some level, while this... You know, is is better than you know we would maybe expect it to be. He could have a barn burner of a match with Juventu Guerrera, who's just sitting in the back doing nothing.
1: I understand, and that is that is armchair quarterback booking. Twenty one years later, that's all that is, Conrad. But he was in, he was brand new at that time, kind of brand new. Yeah, he had come in in okay. August, and
0: yeah. so now it's just November. So at this point, the audience doesn't really have a lot of emotional investment in him. And I understand that this helps create that. I'm just, and and I I go into it now watching, thinking, golly, what a talent Jericho would become. And he's wrestling a referee. I went into it with really low expectations and I came out thinking, well, damn, he made some chicken salad right there. That was pretty good. Yes, he did.
1: And and again, that's one of the reasons Chris Jericho has become such a big star. Uh, the, the Chris Jericho that we know now, you look back and say, Oh my God, he was in that match. Just like you said, what the fuck? But uh, again, uh it, they pulled it off. So, so now Conrad, we're kind of two for two, aren't we?
0: No, we are. And, and I feel like right. that's a fair point. You know, they, they're doing well with what they've got so far. Uh, next up, we've got the giant who is going to be taking on Jeff Jarrett. And this is a rematch from Halloween Havoc 96. Uh, Havoc 96 had, um, uh, the Giant go ahead and take on Ric Flair on the original card, but Ric injured his shoulder, was not able to be there, had to go see Dr. Andrews and get, uh, get surgery. Uh, so instead, Jeff Jarrett takes his place. They're kind of flirting with the idea of Jeff Jarrett being a member of the Horseman, uh, and that would lead to some problems with Mongo that we'll talk about in the future. Uh, so here Jeff Jarrett is back taking on the Giant, in a match at world war three and i guess there's two th- things that i found surprising here uh one i think this run of jeff jarrett is a little forgotten obviously when he came back to wcw a few years later it was a totally different uh position on the card but how awesome was the giant here and how weird was it to see him wearing the united states title around his waist
1: yeah that that, that was quite the look wasn't it yeah uh, I I never minded guys wearing belts around their waist. I thought it made, you know, the title mean a little bit more. But the, to me, the Giant was, was always with us, a kind of an under – and I know we pushed him. We had him in the main event, but he could do so much as a big guy.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, he was
1: absolutely so much as a big guy that I just absolutely loved him. I – uh And and as we as we move along in this card, I think I kind of gave away the finish as well, unfortunately. Uh, But uh, I uh, he could do a lot of things. And let's also uh, let's also say this. I think that the number one spot in this whole show. Was when he picked up Ray Mysterio with one hand and threw him over the top rope in World War three.
0: Oh, for sure, yeah. That's the yeah. visual, and and he gets to do a little bit of throwing of Jeff Jarrett here too. Right, taking him in- out after six minutes with a choke slam. Uh, once upon a time, they had promoted that Flair would be in Jarrett's corner. He is not there. Although prior to the match, Flair does do an interview with his arm in a sling and yeah. really gets the crowd fired up. Doesn't say much, but they love Rick Flair in Norfolk. Um, yes, they do. Uh,
1: I, let me say something about that interview because I wanted to. I saw it and I wanted to talk about it. Let me ask you, Conrad, as a, as a longtime fan and a guy who watched this, now looking back at it, what was wrong with that interview? This is armchair quarterbacking. What was wrong with that interview? You had Gene Oakland, the greatest stick man ever, the greatest interviewer ever. There will be no one even close to him in wrestling. And you had Ric Flair, one of the greatest talkers ever. What was
0: wrong with it? Well, Rick didn't say anything.
1: Well, yeah, he didn't say anything. That's fine. But what was wrong with it was no reaction shots from the crowd. Oh, there you go. Yeah, no reaction shots from. The, we were so fucking dumb. And then, and I did talk about this in production meetings a lot. When Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant agreed to their match for WrestleMania three, remember that when he yanked Hulk Hogan's cross off yeah. and everything, yeah and Hulk Hogan agreed to wrestle the Giant who he didn't want to wrestle, the WWE put in a reaction shot of the crowd getting excited. That one little reaction shot of the crowd reacting to Hulk Hogan saying yes sold that match. We needed more of that. We never got it, and we didn't get it during that one. Fans were going nuts. We didn't see them going nuts. We heard them, but we didn't see them. It was television. It was visual. We were so fucked in doing shit like that, that I think sometimes that our lack of doing things like that fucked us over. And I'm not blaming anybody for that.
0: No, fuck that. We are. It was Keith Mitchell's fault? No. Who's the director at the time? Craig Leathers is the director. Okay, there you go. So it's Craig Leathers' so, fault, you piece okay, of Craig shit. Craig Leathers' fault. Craig Leathers. Why okay. did you get reaction shots? Tony Schiavone yeah. wants reaction shots.
1: Well, we needed them, Conrad. That, that, that would help build the excitement of it. No, I agree. We, we needed more of that. But I think sometimes uh, Craig was so afraid of missing something that uh, he failed to do that. So
0: there. We do see Sting do a run-in here and gives Jeff Jarrett a reverse DDT. Uh, That sets up the big choke slam from the Giant, and we're out of here. What do you think of Jeff Jarrett here, you know, in 1996 – he had walked out kind of famously of the WWF right in the middle of a storyline where they had he and the roadie doing the uh, the the music video, trying to do the Milli Vanilli concept, and now he's here, and he won't be here very long, and he's back on WWF television, and then he would come back one final time for WCW and finish up there. But in, at this moment, did you think that Jarrett – was a good in-ring performer, a good stick man, a good overall performer, too much Memphis for you. What What did you think of 1996, Jeff Jarrett?
1: Well, first of all, I don't think he had too much Memphis for me. I, and I on, a, on a national scale, what was too much Memphis? Maybe for the, the guys who had the dirt sheets and for us who follow wrestling, there was a certain Memphis about him, but I don't think it was too much. It wasn't too much. Great performer in the ring. Very good talker. Uh, Obviously, his uh, being born into wrestling and grown up in wrestling, uh, he had an idea about the business, uh, and he was pretty smart. And I think it's pretty apparent here in uh, 2017 how great of a businessman he is or what a mind he's got for the business. Uh, Jeff Jarrett, love him to death, absolutely, and back then did too. He took some great bumps for the Giants. Oh yeah, you know, the giant. The giant did some good stuff in that match, and we talked about that. But on the other end, you've got to be able to take those bumps for him, and Jared did just that. So I had no problem with Jared. I, I and I still do. I have, <laughs> I have a, a lot of affection for Jeff Jarrett, one of the good guys. Don't you think?
0: Oh, absolutely. So, Jared- yeah, I mean, and,
1: and he's just so Jeff Jarrett. In reality, is maybe as down to earth as anybody I've ever met in wrestling.
0: I uh, as a fan back then I fucking hated him. I, really, I, I, I had, he had get off TV heat with me. I was not interested in him. I was ready for the Giant and the Horseman and the NWO to all stomp his ass out of there. I just uh-huh. didn't. I just did not dig him. Now, okay. when he comes why, back, why? I don't know. I'm allowed to just not like stuff. I just didn't yeah, like. I know it.
1: you are. I know you are. But there's there's two kinds of heat. You know, there's heat that you want to see somebody kick his ass, and there's heat that. Yeah, I've seen enough of him. I'm tired of
0: him. I would, I would have liked for, for his character at this point to have been buried and off TV. Just make it go away. Okay. Um, now, when he comes back the second run, I hated it a lot less, and I started to get into it. And then, believe it or not, in the early days of TNA, uh, when they were doing the weekly pay-per-views, I started to get into it a little bit, and I could see. okay, I get now that he's not just a good wrestler, that he does have this other character stuff. And then in the more recent years, of course, we just did the live show with Bruce uh, earlier this year at WrestleMania. I got to spend a little bit of time with Jeff Jarrett. He's the coolest dude ever. So, you know, there's two different perspectives. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, back then I I just, I, I hate him. I don't like him. Get him off TV. And then, you know, I see him later and I have a different appreciation. And then I meet the real person in real life. And it's like, okay, he's pretty fucking cool. Yeah.
1: Changes your perspective. and, and, Keep in mind that my perspective in all of this is – and I've said this so many times, and it's – God, guys, it's true. Every guy who was there I got along with because they all liked me. They all were nice to me because they thought that by being nice to me, I would put them over. And what they didn't realize was it was my job to put them over anyway, and if I liked you or not, if you were a good guy or not – I was going to say great things about you on TV because that was my job. So everybody was nice to me. Some guys were a little bit more down to earth than others. Jeff Jarrett was one of these real down to earth, second generation, died in the wool, family, old school wrestling guys. So I liked him a lot.
0: Do you, um, do you have any fun Jerry Jarrett stories? I only met Jerry Jarrett one time. Did you ever have lunch, like chicken salad or something like that with Jerry I did not. I
1: did not. Uh, my only Jerry Jarrett story is this: uh, I did one thing for TNA, if you'll remember. It's yeah. For some for some reason, it's become kind of famous now. Where I turned heel in the ring, argued with Mike Tenay, and did an interview in the back with Vince Russo, a heel interview in the back as their stick man. Uh, between the times that we shot that interview and we shot the interview at the end, we did all our stuff in the ring. I walked in the back. And stood there watching the monitor with Jerry Jarrett. And he was talking to me about the business and this and that. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm hearing him talk. And I hear his voice. And I'm not listening. And I'm watching the monitor. And I hear Don West. probably told this story before. I hear Don West and Mike Taney scream and shout over the top about every fucking lousy bump that was going on in the ring. And I remember listening to them, watching the monitor, hear the noise from Jared in my ear, thinking, I've had enough of this fucking business. And that's when on the way home, I told Vince Russo I can't do it anymore.
0: So Jerry Jarrett uh, convinced you to leave wrestling just by his mere presence.
1: Uh, No, I'm not going to blame Jerry Jarrett for that, but he was (laughs) a part of that noise that night.
0: (laughs) Hey, um, let me ask a serious question. Have you invested?
1: Listen, that's a serious
0: answer. How do you feel about gold as an investment? I don't have a bit of gold. Uh, it's it's a global force uh, these days. Is it really? Hey, uh, Roddy Piper comes out next to sign a contract, and uh, he's supposed to be signing this contract to face Hulk Hogan, but Hogan doesn't come out at it first. So instead, uh, we get Eric Bischoff, Vincent, and Ted DiBiase, uh, and this <laughs> this caused Tony Schiavone to deliver the line that he never thought he'd see the day that Eric Bischoff and Vincent were walking down the aisle together. How about that, huh? Improvisation right there, guys. No one fed me that one. Uh, I thought, like you said, this was a really great segment. I think this is a more underrated time of Piper's career. I think you could argue that uh, his 1996 is as good of a year as he's had in 10 years. You know, you go back to the early days of the WWF rock and wrestling and the WrestleMania push and how over like Rover Roddy Piper was there. You fast yeah, the forward pit era, right? Yeah. And you fast forward yeah. 10 years and now he's coming off of the, uh, he was a, a big part of WrestleMania in 1996 with gold dust. And now, you know, and Halloween havoc makes the surprise debut at the end of the pay-per-view. They're going to do the contract signing here on world war three. It's Starcade is set. So, Anytime you can have a situation where in a calendar year, uh, and he did this before with Starcade and WrestleMania, and now here he is, you know, doing this with Starcade and WrestleMania, I mean, he's a big part of these shows, and it's because he can deliver on the stick. He knows how to create interest, and when Hogan does eventually come out, uh, they try to build an angle around the big reveal that Piper has had hip surgery and Hogan really harps on this. This to me didn't come off that great that it was this is the big secret. But I thought Piper was the star of the segment by far. And and to be able to outshine Hogan in this type of setting is really saying something. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Yeah, Piper's uh everything he did, didn't he always come off as the big star? Yes. Even when he did Piper's Pit back then, he would do the interviews, and of course he did the Piper's Pit again where Hogan and Andre the Giant Signed their one. He was still the big star. Yeah. Uh, Roddy Piper, if I go down my top ten performers of all time, Roddy Piper's top five. Wow. Of all time. Uh, because uh, when they ask me, when, I, when I've been asked before, who is your favorite interview? I mean, Flair, Cornette, no question. love doing that. But I did a lot of great things with Roddy Piper, too. Uh, one of my first interviews with Roddy Piper was, we were, uh, this was back in 1983, yeah, 1983, leading up to Starcade, the first Starcade, when Piper and Greg Valentine had the dog collar match. And Piper, uh, we did an interview for Greensboro, local market, and I did it with Piper, and he hooked the dog collar on me and grabbed me and drugged me around back and forth in the little studio right there as I'm holding the microphone. Uh, And he was such a gentleman. And he asked me afterwards, are you okay? I don't want to hurt you because they didn't tell me it was going to happen. Uh, And I remember thinking, man, that's some great improvisation. That's 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 brilliant. And I thought from then on, uh, I got to know Roddy. Not that well, but but I, I thought he was one of the still one of the top five performers of all time. And why is that? Because he could talk. When you go back to the top performers of all time, they could talk. They didn't do a lot of false finish lucha libre bumps. They could talk, and he was old school like that.
0: Uh this is kind of a, an interesting time in WCW because this is where we see Bischoff, you know, turn nwo. So now the the boss, the leader is a bad guy. Uh, in retrospect, this really kind of created something that the wwe has done ever since obviously we would see the mr mcmahon character evolve uh in 1998 to be a a maybe the biggest angle in the history of wrestling with he and stone cold and then they kind of keep that authority angle all the way up until now you know more than 20 years later uh since we saw bischoff as the heel boss did you think that was a good move at the time Obviously, it had a lot of legs, and maybe it would be a little too much of a good thing. Uh, but do you remember you being in favor of that as a concept, that there would be a heel boss? Damn right. Yeah. Uh,
1: for for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, and this is very, very uh, selfish on my part, it put me on nitro. There you go. Uh, and I like that. Uh, as we move forward, I obviously ended up doing too much shit, and uh, my overexposure really, I think, hurt me in many ways, uh, in many different angles. Uh, but it put me on nitro. Number two, Eric was Eric was a legit heel. I mean, Eric could really be a shithead.
0: No, still can be.
1: Yeah. Uh, so the, the part was very easy for him. And we when he, you watch this angle, when he walks out, he has that freaking smirk on his face. Uh, that you want to see Roddy Piper just knock him the fuck out. Absolutely. Yeah. So he pulled it off quite well.
0: Great segment here. No one can argue that. And uh, Meltzer even gives a high praise. He says uh, Piper was awesome carrying the angle. Hogan did a great job carrying his end of the angle as well. Too bad they have to wrestle a match. And I think that was a, a common criticism at the time because on the other channel, you know, your main events are guys like Bret Hart and Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels, and those are the guys who were at the top of the card. Meanwhile, in WCW, the undercard is stacked. You know, you've got Chris Jericho and Ultimo Dragon and Rey Mysterio in the opening matches, but then on top, you've got what's what feels like some reheated leftovers with, hey, we've seen this before on a much bigger stage, but here again... Hogan and Piper were drawing the bigger numbers. So is is there at the time any thought from, from your stance that, hey, maybe we should be trying to push the athleticism a little more and make the legends act more of a nostalgia act, maybe right before, you know, intermission or whatever, and it's still got a viable spot on the card. But we should be pushing the younger talent, which had kind of been what WCW had done for years and years, or is it time at this point in your head, hey, mash the gas. This NWO angle is the hottest thing ever. Anything we can counter-program Hogan with is going to draw money. That's exactly right. And why was that?
1: Hey, look, we, we get into a lot of times, and I know you, you may be thinking, well, Shivani's talking out of both sides of his mouth here. Uh, but we get into sometimes looking, especially the dirt sheet guys like Dave Meltzer, work rate. Right. Obviously, Bret Hart can work. Ric Flair can work. Chris Jericho can work Owen Hart was spectacular before his untimely death. Guys like that could really perform, but could they talk and draw people in? Steve Austin could work, but did he really do big business before he became stone cold and he could talk and his character could bring you into the building? You know, for years and years and years, Dusty Rhodes was not a good worker. But he did big business, and why did he do big business? Because he could talk. So I'm saying these bi- these guys, these big stars, which you may say is nostalgia, we've seen that before. They could still draw the business because they could they could they could rap. They were dramatic, and now Hogan was a heel.
0: Big no, angle. Hogan yeah. is a heel. It's totally different, you know, and, and I it's, get it's it. Something new, yeah. And and it's one of the only times I'm sure we'll cover Starcade '96 in the future. But it's one of the only times that Hogan would do a clean job as well on pay-per-view. Um, you know, you hadn't seen that a lot uh, up until here. And now here it happens um, at Stargate anyway. I, I do want to ask, we've covered the details and the terms of Hogan's contract on the show before, and we know just how outrageous his pay is whenever he's on pay-per-view. And here he's on pay-per-view signing a contract, but he's still getting paid just a ridiculous amount of cash wouldn't it make more sense to just save this for nitro the next night financially i i, I
1: agree with you I, I remember seeing this angle thinking that why don't we put this on nitro i'm not thinking about the money
0: that hogan was making But more people would see it, it. yeah.
1: Exactly, no question. More people would see it.
0: It it feels like, you know, conventional wisdom would say, put it on free TV because that's when more people will see it and it will build more interest for your next pay-per-view. But it feels as if Hogan maybe would have been able to get in somebody's ear here and push for it to be on pay-per-view so he can get a big payday and not have to work a match. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, glad you agree. Okay. Next up, we've got Harlem Heat taking on the amazing French-Canadians. Uh, that's Jacques Rougeau Jr. and uh, Carl Willette. Uh, Meltzer described it as an awful match, except for Booker T doing a few cool spots. Um, they go about 9 minutes and 14 seconds. Ultimately, Booker T would win with a Harlem hangover. He would get uh, the pin on Carl there. And because of the pre-match stipulations, this means that Sensational Sherry now gets five minutes with Colonel Robert Parker, uh, which is probably all you need. And all you need to do to really be in the loop on what I'm referencing there is go to ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW and check out, and I can't believe this is real, some of the great new shirts, including, are you ready for this, Tony? I'm ready. Parker's Jump Rope Academy (laughs) t-shirt. As advertised, we've got it. There is an outline of a man jumping rope. Uh, of course, huh. that academy was established in 1951. Don't forget the button-on-a-fur coat shirt, the mm. brand-new I'm-a-Tom-Zink-guy t-shirt, and, yeah. of course, the What Happened When hot tag inspired by the old Krispy Kreme hot now. Uh, we saw some of our friends of the show recently sporting that Clondick shirt. It's also available there. Just in time for Mother's Day next week, Lois Rules, uh, and our new famous one, uh, old commentary ninja. Uh, it's in the <laughs> teenage mutant ninja turtle style. It's in a baby blue color. You got to see it. Old commentary ninja Tony. You can get all of these shirts right now at prowrestlingtees.com forward slash whw. And what happens when you order a shirt, Tony? When you order a shirt, I will give you a call.
1: Now I have. Uh, there's been a couple of, uh, couple of people who have ordered shirts that have. <laughs> have given me phone numbers. Uh, one gave me a fax number. That's a rib. Uh, that's great. Th- that's got to be a rib. And one gave me their office number. There's a lot of people I've missed. If I've called and I haven't really left you a message, then I have un- been an- unable to. But I will call you, and we'll have a nice conversation. had some great conversations last week, uh, and and I do appreciate it. Uh, I got our buddy, Norge, from down in Florida, who's bought like three shirts uh, and absolutely loves the business. And Norge, I appreciate finally getting getting able to talk to you. I think he's bought three shirts, and I missed him like two or three times. We had a long talk. So I will call you, and uh, it will be a number that you won't recognize or will be a number that says no number available. Uh, so pick up the phone. I, I'm I'm not a marketer. I, I'm not collecting bills. I'm Tony Schiavone wanting to talk to you and appreciate you uh, being a part of of WHW. Buying a shirt has helped out uh, my daughter's wedding, but more importantly, listening to our podcast and being part of what we are doing and loving the sport to me is as big, and I, and I appreciate that.
0: So go ahead. He'd love to have your money. We're paying for a damn wedding. ProWrestlingTees.com <laughs> forward slash WHW. So Sherry gets her five minutes with Colonel Parker. Colonel Parker is all decked out in Civil War era gear here. And, um, they do some hilarious interaction. It's supposed to be five minutes. It only goes about a minute and a half, but this makes me miss dusty Rhodes on commentary. Maybe more than anything I've seen in a long, long time. If you haven't seen this or you haven't seen it in a long time, I encourage you to go, uh, find the Harlem heat, amazing French Canadians match. Fast forward the match. It's not great. It gets three quarters of a star from Dave Meltzer, uh, but the finish and the payoff with Sherry and Parker And the commentary, I had it on this weekend, uh, watching the show, preparing for our our podcast here, and my girlfriend was laughing. She does not like wrestling. She's not into it. Uh, She knows who some of the people are and can keep up a little bit, but she's like, ugh. Well, she hears Dusty's commentary and is immediately in tune and thinks it's hilarious. So you will get a kick out of this. Go find it on the WWE Network.
1: It is announcing gold, announcing gold. And uh, I really had to do what we've heard that that some of our listeners do with our podcast, and that is put it on pause because I was laughing so hard uh, at Dusty's commentary. Uh, And I do need to uh, interject here at this time that I'm watching this show, especially at the beginning. I'm watching this show. I think, and I thought our commentary was, I thought we did a great job. Uh, And uh, and I'm going to say we because I think that Dusty, and Bobby Heenan were spectacular in this. Absolutely spectacular.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, it, two of the two We didn't of the step Titans. on each other, right? That yeah. Much? No, we're stepping all over each other right now, but you guys were pros back then, and Dusty <laughs> is a damn comedian, and he, I don't even know that he really realized it, but he had great stuff. Like when Jericho was coming to the ring, he says, he is on the doorstep to Sodom. I don't even know what that means, but I don't think he is. Um, later... <laughs> He made some sort of point and no one said anything, and yeah. he said, "Well, okay, I guess I'm just talking to myself here." And then you defended, "Well, I was letting you finish your thought," and he said something like, "Well, I was verbiaging out." I it. That's he has a thousand of these things throughout the show. I, I enjoyed the and the the way Dusty is able to say something and then Bobby play right off of it. Yeah. You know, at one point Dusty said during the Nick Patrick Chris Jericho match, "I think Nick is going home." And Bobby immediately says one way or another, and I don't know why. <laughs> but if you know, if you know the terminology in wrestling, and you know that that could that could mean a little inside baseball reference there, and Bobby's all over it. But if you weren't paying right. attention, you you know, and you didn't understand the jargon, you didn't catch that at all. But this show is littered with that, and and that was the most enjoyable part. You know, obviously, I enjoyed the first match a great deal, but the commentary. With Dusty and Bobby, and, and there is another slapdick there. It is outstanding.
1: I felt, and, and, and going back and looking at it, I'm thinking to myself, look at this. You got this motherfucker, me, between two of the great legends of all time and the oh, great yeah. talkers of all time, Dusty Rhodes and Bobby Heenan, and then I got Gene Okerlund to work with, and Zabisco's there, and Mike Tanay and my good friend Lee Marshall. But especially standing between those two guys, I remember watching that this week thinking, how lucky was I? Right. Jesus, how lucky was I to be in that in that scenario? I'm just uh and I agree, you know, uh, years as as the years went on, I told Dusty I had a fantasti I thought a fantastic idea. I said TNT or TBS ought to do a show, a reality show with you. And this is before reality shows became real. Oh you took off. Oh, the the phony reality shows they have now. But I thought we ought to have a show with Dusty and his pickup truck called Dusty Roads America, where he would go around to the small towns and find interesting people and talk to them and interview them and do his Dusty Roads comedic stick. Uh, that was my idea. It never went anywhere, but I think that uh,
0: it would have been great. Dusty could have yeah. been a cable if Dusty uh, from 1996 was able to be around in the way. That, you know, in the same health from 96 and the same age in 96 that he could have been in maybe like 2012, uh, Dusty Rhodes would be one of the biggest reality TV stars on television. No question. He would be one of the biggest cable television stars, like, by far. Because it, you look at how much reality TV just junk is on all the cable stations, and Dusty is, is a, a multiple of the performer of any of those guys. Yeah. Exactly.
1: And it goes back to the old, even the, the pre 1996 dusty Rhodes, who wasn't the greatest worker in the world, but he could talk your ass in the building. And even you'd go to see him wrestle and you'd think, well, you know, he obviously would pair himself as a booker with guys who could work to help him out. He was smart like that. But even though he wasn't that great a worker, you would come back and see him again and again and again because of his rap. Amazing. Absolutely amazing.
0: Hey, real quick, let's do some rapid fire stuff. Um, have you ever seen Carl Weil play baseball? No, I've not. Do you believe in miracles? Yes, I do. Uh, when did you know Booker T had it? Uh, one of the first times I saw him. It, it, he really stands out in this match here, this tag team match with the French Canadians. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Yeah, I do. I, too much talking into the camera, though. Well, yeah, to me he, that gets old. But the kid could the kid could do some amazing things. Harlem Hangover. That kick of his was looked stiff and may have been pretty stiff. But, yeah, Booker T was, uh, from the get-go, to me, was a, a major talent. Did you say
0: from the get-go or the ghetto?
1: I said from the get, G-I-T okay. hyphen G-O. I don't want to be, have anybody misquote me on social media. Why do you set me up with this bullshit? I don't
0: know what you're talking about. I mean, hey, yeah, I know. why didn't the amazing French Canadians do more in WCW? Do they have heat?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Jacques. Uh, Jacques was not the uh, the easiest guy to work with. Give me give me a story. I don't have a story. I just know that he was very difficult to work with, and I know that a lot of times there were finishes brought to him that he didn't like, and he was very vocal. Uh, Jacques Rougeau. Uh, when I when I go back and I talked earlier about me agreeing with everything,
0: he didn't agree with maybe anything. I sh-
1: maybe I should have been a little bit more Jacques Rougeau like on some things. I don't know.
0: Any good uh, Sherry Martel stories you can share with us? I think she's one of the more underrated performers in the business. Underrated, but I think she is. I
1: think she'll go down as one of the great uh, female wrestlers ever. I mean, she she doesn't look like the divas they have now, right? But but I mean, look look what she did in that match. Outstanding. <laughs> just that a clothesline and a crossbody, uh, and just uh, but but in in the same breath, uh, a tragic figure. Sure. Uh, because she obviously had some problems uh, and didn't live long enough. Uh, we uh, we always worried about her. Here's a Sherry story. Heenan worried about her all the time. He was concerned about her. Uh, the reason he was concerned about her was, and if you'll notice watching this pay-per-view, Heenan gets up a couple of times and moves because Bobby was had, had neck surgery and was petrified of getting hit. Right. Because of his neck surgery. Uh, anytime that Sherry was around, Bobby Heenan thought that she would do something so fucking nuts that she would end up you know, hitting us or jumping on the table or picking up a chair or doing something crazy and hurting us. So Bobby was scared to death of her.
0: You know, I thought you were going to say he was worried about her health or her safety. He was worried no. about himself. I love that. Yeah. That's so Bobby yeah. Heenan.
1: It is. I mean, legitimately, he said, you know, he said, you know, he said, she's fucking nuts. Uh, you know, she who's who knows what she's going to do when she's out here. And of course, I, I've used this line before. The only the only contact I had with Sherry was she would see me in the back and she would go, hey, Mr. S, how you doing? I'd say, hey, Sherry, how are you? And that's the only contact we had. But one of the great performers, really female performers of all time. Wouldn't you agree?
0: No, I totally agree. At least, agree. I think at least she's during my era. Way, way, way underrated. Next up. Two more underrated guys, Dean Malenko and Psychosis. They go about 14 and a half minutes. Malenko is putting his Cruiserweight title on the line here. Uh, This match would get two and three-quarter stars uh, from the Wrestling Observer. It did say that uh, they started the match off with solid mat wrestling, but that the crowd was totally dead. And I feel like that's probably because they came off of, as silly as this sounds, such a fun, hot little interaction with Sherry and Parker As random as that sounds, they kind of stole the show right beforehand. Um, And Meltzer would write, it was Malenko's match, and he did really little to allow Psychosis to show his strengths. While part of this can be blamed on poor announcing not getting holds over, by this point it has been accepted that in WCW that Malenko's holds uh, not being over because of the announcing is simply a given. After all the time, Malenko deserves some of the blame for calling a match that is great for the tiny minority of fans and shows all the Japanese fans and she wrestling fans that he's a top level Japanese style worker. But that means nothing to the audience he's wrestling in front of until the announcers explain what it is that he is today with those holds. Uh, He either needs to tell the announcers what he's doing, why and what hurts if he was doing it for real and then get them to teach the audience. Or if not, just don't do it. As it was, the announcers, instead of explaining what he was doing, used the fact that he was doing mat work to not call the match and instead talk about Hogan and Piper. So I wanted to read all that to you just to get a reaction and a comment about the criticism that the reason this match wasn't good was you personally specifically.
1: I've been wondering when I can use that. Thank you very much. Yeah, I got a reaction to that. Fuck
0: Dave Meltzer. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. You're doing your job. I assume somebody's in your head yeah. saying push yeah, the fucking sure. pay-per-view, right?
1: There's no there yeah, there's no question there they are. And you know, you know, I I had always had an open invitation to Dave Meltzer and some of those other creeps like uh I don't know Wade Keller and there was one really back then, one real jack off named Steve Beverly. I don't even know what happened to happen to him. But I always had the open invitation that why don't you come sit down and I'll step out and you can do the commentary. I always had that open invitation. I didn't. I uh, I probably did poorly in this match as an announcer because I would never call Dave Meltzer after a match and stick my nose up his ass. Oh. Uh, so there.
0: Uh, what did you think of, um, psychosis and Dean Malenko as individual performers? I've always thought Dean Malenko was, was kind of critically underrated. I know he didn't have the best promos in the world, uh, but as far as his matches, I don't remember there being a bad Dean Malenko match and, uh, I enjoy the large majority of them. And I thought psychosis was maybe one of the more underrated luchadors, but you know, in an, in an environment where you've got a big personality like La Parca, and just the you know amazing Rey Mysterio and Juventud Guerrero, Psychosis feels like he winds up be, being in the second fiddle position, but in the absence of those guys, he would have been the biggest luchador star there. Well, what was yeah. your takeaway on Malenko and Psychosis? I, I have no takeaway
1: because obviously I didn't, I didn't watch or pay attention to the match. I was calling something else back then, and I guess that was pre-Tony Schiavone 1999-2000 where I wasn't paying attention. So I, I can't really uh, comment on it because I didn't do enough of the uh, Japanese-style wrestling that Dave Meltzer whacks off to.
0: All right. Uh, next up, we've got Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. They're going to be defending uh, the WCW World Tag Team Titles. so let's process this. Hall and Nash, two of the biggest stars in the business, uh, really set the territory on fire. Let's book them against Ming and the Barbarian and the Nasty Boys.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, not that... Not that good. I, I thought the I thought the actual match itself. Well, I know the actual match itself after I watched it again. Uh, probably came off quite well. Wow, uh, don't you think so? As, no. as a triangle match could be.
0: I thought it was fucking awful, and so did the okay. Raiders of the Wrestling Observer All Newsletter. Right. It came right. in second for worst match.
1: Okay, it was an awful match, but the actual finish.
0: Well, oh, the... The, the, the okay. finish was cool. I agree with you.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So when you look at a match, sometimes and you say that match sucked, but the finish was okay. Does that mean the match sucked? Uh, sometimes you, you, many times you have a finish of a match in the direction you wanted to go, and the finish came out okay. That's why I don't get the all the all criticism of this of this show, with the exception of the last part of it. I understand that, but uh, I thought you know the fact that when they both got in the ring at the same time, they were going to lay down for each other, that storyline that the NWO takes care of each other. And then they come over and, uh, and get the, uh, and get the win. You know, it was all, it was all kind of to build the NWO as being this group that takes care of itself. And I thought it, it furthered that storyline and they won. So what the hell?
0: Well, it uh, goes 16 minutes before it mercifully comes to an end. Um, well, maybe
1: we should have. Maybe we should have had in the middle of that match, Dean Malenko and Psychosis do a run in and do a couple of fucking holds in the middle. While all uh, six of them looked on the outside and me stumbled over not being able to call the match that Dave Meltzer would have wanted for fucking Japan. How about that? Maybe we should have done that, and that would have helped the match. Or maybe we would have Malenko and Psychosis wait until. Uh, fucking Ultimo, Ultimate Dragon came running in with Rey Mysterio without the mask so we could see him looking <laughs> handsome and they do a couple of fucking high spots, then fucking leave. Then Meltzer could jack off for a couple of minutes and we could get back to the uh, six guys in the ring having their match, which had a fucking good finish, by the way.
0: Uh, you ain't got to get hot, Tony.
1: Ugh. Just, you know, just, bu- just fucking bullshit sitting at home shivani is a fucking dick lick he's he's the reason that the business is going to shits but what the fuck do you know in reality what the fuck do you know i'm not talking about you conrad you know a lot of shit but what the fuck do you know fuck Pick up the stick and do it your fucking self listen let's get back here here, i challenge (laughs) listen (laughs) i challenge you to pick up the stick and do it your fucking self in 1999 or in 2000 when i had uh Terry Taylor in my ear, and I had Kevin Sullivan, and I had Craig Leathers, and I had Eric Bischoff, and I had Ed Ferrara in my ear. I challenge you to do that fucking shit, okay? I challenge, I dare you to do it. Ah, let me take a let me take a a, a swig of something here.
0: I uh, I just laughed so much I think I peed a little. <laughs> okay. Uh, hey, let's get back on track. I don't know how to make you happy. If if Tom Zink. Would have been managed by Deborah McMichael. What would their name have been? What well, Tom Zink's name or my name? Well, well, you would have been Tony Zink. But I'm saying, um, if they were like a, a tag team, an intergender yeah. tag team, what would Tom Zink and Deborah McMichael's intergender tag team name be? Uh,
1: I I, I don't know that. That's a couple of big ones right there. Yeah, it is.
0: Uh, So Meltzer would describe the match here as a long nothing match that went nowhere. The absolutely ludicrous WCW Triangle rules were in effect in the match where it ended with whomever scored the pin getting the win and the belts. The rules were mocked to the point of stupidity when Hall and Nash were tagged in and Nash simply laid down for Hall, which would enable them to keep the belts, except that pin was broken up. It ended with Knobs decking Jimmy Hart on the apron, and the megaphone went flying. Hall got the megaphone and knocked out Knobs with it, and Nash used the jackknife on Knobs for the pin. Half a star, uh, and these guys are out of there. 16 minutes. And then we get to the main event, a 60-man, three-ring battle royal that goes 28 minutes and 21 seconds uh, for the record. The 60 participants were... Lex Luger, Eddie Guerrero, Tony Rumble, Diamond Dallas yeah. Page, High Voltage, Michael Wall yeah. Street, American Males, Craig Pittman, Harlem Heat, Big Bubba, Hugh Morris, Conan, Ron Studd, yeah. Steve Regal, La Parka, Pez Watley, Steve mm. McMichael, Disco Inferno, Renegade, Joe Gomez, Ming, Barbarian, Bunkhouse Buck, Arn Anderson, Johnny Grunge, Cyclope. Galaxy 6, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, The Giant, Scott Norton, Ultimo Jagan, Jimmy Graffiti, Mike Ooh. Enos, Rey Mysterio, uh, Roadblock, Ice Train, Jack Boot, <laughs> Jim Duggan, <laughs> Chris Benoit, to Guerrera, Amazing French Canadians, Prince Ikea, Dean Malenko, Jeff Jarrett, Bobby Eaton, Jim Powers, David Taylor, Chris Jericho, Alex Wright, Mark Starr, JL, Milano Four, Rick Steiner, and Kevin Sullivan. Um, Meltzer would report the lineup changed in the last week as they added most of the NWO members, including the Giant, who ended up winning, who weren't originally scheduled to be part of it. Now, this is, of course, because the winner here gets a title shot down the line against Hulk Hogan. Uh, Meltzer would report, even though Sting was in all the advertising as a participant, the decision was made weeks ago against him being in it. It was impossible to follow, made worse by the fact that most of the announcers didn't appear to know who half the participants were. The funniest one was Volano Number 4, whose name was never even mentioned. And even when he was eliminated right on screen, it appeared nobody knew who he was, so the elimination was simply ignored. At another point, for comedy purposes, Lee Marshall took a bump. The Horseman and the Dungeon of Doom brawled all over the ringside from the start and were all eliminated for no apparent reason, even though no one ever took a bump over the top. This was stemming from the angle shot the night before in Baltimore, which made no sense to everyone in Baltimore the night before since the angle didn't air on the show. At one point, Lee Marshall talked about Scott Steiner being eliminated, even though he was never even in the match. And Rick Steiner, who was, had not yet been eliminated. It was basically a 25-minute test pattern in the middle of a bad pay-per-view show. The NWO guys all stayed in the corner by themselves and did very little during the match, Finally, it came down to the final 10, being Luger, Jarrett, Regal, Mysterio, Guerrero, Page, Giant, Six, Hall, and Nash. The WCW crew squared off with the NWO crew, except Page at the beginning, who was neutral. Regal threw out Guerrero, Giant threw out Mysterio with one arm, pitching him onto Guerrero, and then Nash would close line Jarrett over. Page goes over when Regal ducked the charge, and the entire NWO then eliminated Regal. All this happened in less time than it took to ride it. This left Luger with the entire NWO. Luger got the Giant on the top rope and from that position racked him on his shoulders, but it was broken up. He then threw Hall out, threw six on Hall, and racked Nash. Giant then knocked both Luger and Nash out of the ring for the win. The finish was good at least. Can't see what they learned from this fiasco to give it a better match next year, half a star. Uh, this was a lot of crazy shit going on here with a lot of guys. I, when I saw this, I was like, who the hell is that? That was Tony rumble. Uh, some of these guys, Jimmy graffiti, Jack boot, lots of weird stuff where I'm like, I don't know who that guy is. And I'm a pretty big wrestling nerd, as you know. So for me to not know who they are, uh, it's an obscure reference. What did you think of this match? And were there any particular spots that you want to discuss? And what was your takeaway from the way Meltzer kind of took the commentary team to task again?
1: Yeah, he took the commentary. I thought the commentary team did a pretty good job of throwing it around. I don't think we stepped on each other. We had six guys working, which was probably too much. Uh, I thought the Lee Marshall bump was, was pretty hilarious uh, because we all love Lee, and <laughs> he, he sold it quite well. How you doing over there, Lee? Not good. What the hell? You know. I just got hit, and Zapisco was tremendous. Uh, interesting uh, comment there. Uh, the match took less time than it did to write it. Correct? Didn't you say that? Yeah. Okay. I, wow. Well, I guess Dave was in the booking committee and helped write that thing then, since he knows how long it took to write it. Amazing. No, no.
0: I, I think he's, he's referencing in his newsletter when he's recapping how fast some of the eliminations were at the end.
1: Well, you know, it was too many people.
0: Yeah. Right. Sure.
1: I, I mean, when you have 60 people, you are going to get a lot of guys who mean nothing and know nothing. And, you know, with all these guys going out at the same time and all these different announcers, I, I think as an announce crew, we did a, probably as good as we could do with announcing all these guys. I mean, we're watching Look, we're all watching the same thing. And we've always did. We've always done this. We're watching the same thing the fans are watching. We're watching the screen the monitor, and we're watching three little boxes. So we don't know who was all going out. And, you know, if if, I, if we missed a guy's name, then what the fuck did that, did that mean anyway? Was that important that we hit every guy who's going out? That we talked about every guy? That we gave a background of every guy who went out? Oh, here out goes psychosis. And you know psychosis had his head stuck up his ass back in uh, 1995, pulled out by Dean Malenko and sniffed by Dave Meltzer Mm. to make sure it smelled right. Mm. Uh, I I, I think going back and listening to that, I think we did a good job of not talking over each other, and I think the, the, the finish of it, as Meltzer said, was good because it got over what we wanted to get over, and I think if you go back and you watch the end of that, the fans were pretty much into it at the end. They were all mixed up as we were. But if you're in the arena and you see 60 guys go at it, there's something pretty cool about that. I thought production-wise that we fucked up by just staying on that three shot all the time. I think that was one of the messes. And, of course, basically they had to do it, I guess, because they didn't know who was going out in what order. I mean, you, you kind of get a rundown of who you think going out when, but will the guys actually pull it off? I mean, if we say that Diamond Dallas Page, for instance, is the first man going out, suppose somebody else goes out and you miss that shot. So they probably had to, with three rings do that, but I thought maybe they should have pulled off their, that three shot and taken maybe a one shot of, you know, maybe ring number one at one time or ring number three. I, I agree it was a big clusterfuck, no question. There were too many slots and not enough uh, not enough pieces of talent to fill that slot. So if we miss some of those guys... Then it didn't matter to where we were going anyway, and that was furthering the NWO angle. What to me was was odd about the whole thing was the fact that we just signed Piper and Hogan, and now
0: we're, we're having Giants, a match for a title shot.
1: Exactly, exactly. We shouldn't have had the, the match. Shouldn't have been for the title shot if we were going to book Hogan and and Piper for the next pay per view.
0: Well, so well,
1: that to me was a clusterfuck.
0: Let me get some rapid-fire questions in here. Uh, Was Lee Marshall, um, was he up for the physical angle here? Yeah. Um, Chris Benoit and Kevin Sullivan are in the middle of a real-life slash on-camera situation. Yeah. Was this uncomfortable for everyone in the locker room at this time? Yes. Okay. Well, I thought at
1: first that whole thing was a work. Sure. I really did. Again, I uh I had been so uh desensitized by uh the business that I thought everything was a work. Uh but then I realized it wasn't and it, it was very uncomfortable for everybody.
0: Kevin Nash uh it looks like he's walking to the ring drinking a beer. Do you remember yeah. th- do you remember this?
1: Uh yeah. Is this Nash did- it look, look, Nash and Hall both realized, rightfully so, along with Hogan.
0: That they're above the law.:
1: that, Right, because they're the reason they're the reason that we turned around. Those guys were the reason that we, that we were now number one. Let me, ask you, let me
0: ask you this though. Do you think there's any chance in hell Kevin Nash would have ever walked to a WWF ring drinking a beer?: Nope. Isn't that interesting?
1: Yeah, well, that's not. In, that, that's that's logical. Vince ran his business. The buck stopped with him, and he was there. The buck stopped with whom? Eric, somewhat, really, but not really. Eric, Eric didn't cut the paychecks. Didn't come out of his pocket. Do you think and there? There's the whole rub of the bit. There's the whole rub of the business right there. I've said it from day one. It's not that we. Well, there's a lot of things led to the downfall. But number one is is that Vince owned his business. We did not own our business. We were run by a shitty television company, and that's why we failed. And that's number one. A lot of things happened, put them all together. A lot of things happened in our company that would have never happened in the WWF because the buck stopped with Vince McMahon when it's your money, Conrad, you know this as well as I do, when it's your money, it's a lot different than if it's somebody else's money.
0: No doubt about it. And uh, this pay-per-view uh, certainly drew money. It was it was maybe not critically well-received, but it was a financial success. WCW was doing something right here uh, as far as making money, even if critically it wasn't their best work. Uh, in hindsight, which we like to talk about on this show. is kind of the whole point of the show. Do you think that this 60-man battle royal concept could have been executed better with two rings and 40 guys and it's still been bigger than the Royal Rumble and just cut 20 guys off and a ring out of there?
1: Yeah, it's pretty apparent now, isn't it, when you take a look at some of the guys who came out and you take a look at how it was shot.
0: Yeah, there's no question. What was your favorite Tony Rumble match? Uh,
1: The one where he went splat and we got rid of him.
0: Oh, gosh. Okay, let's go to Twitter. Uh, we asked your uh, feedback and asked, hey, do you have a question about World War 396 for Tony Schiavone? Just reply to this tweet and tune into MLW Monday. So if you don't hear your question here and you're thinking, man, I would have liked to have done that, well, go follow us at WHW Monday on Twitter. Uh, let's get through some rapid-fire questions here. Joe Self wants to know, I'd love to know why Randy Savage disappeared from TV from Halloween Havoc until he returned to Nitro in late January
1: 97. Uh, Randy was hurt. Okay. Wasn't wasn't
0: 100%. Uh, Frank wants to know, how does the Norfolk Scope rank on Tony's list of favorite buildings? It looks awesome on TV.
1: Norfolk Scope was one of the tops of buildings. And I say that because I'm old school Jim Crockett promotions, right? The great buildings for us back then were the Norfolk Scope, the Baltimore Arena, Greensboro Coliseum, uh the Charlotte the old, old Charlotte Coliseum back then. Those were our big buildings. The Omni was okay. Uh and I know Atlanta was our home, but Norfolk was one of the top three. No question. Uh, another one was uh the old Jacksonville Memorial Coliseum. That was a great venue for us as well.
0: WCWTF podcast asks Since Tom Zink wasn't in the World War Three match, who was Tony's favorite to win it going in and why did he just pick Joe Gomez? <laughs>
1: Does that come from Joe? No. Yeah. Okay. Joe, that motherfucking knucklehead, Joe Gomez. Ah, was he a knucklehead? And uh, actually, uh, I'd like Jack Boot.
0: Oh, uh, sure. Well, who doesn't?
1: Because Jack Boot was Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, who was one of the trainers at the uh, power plant, and was as stiff as they come.
0: Uh Mike Prue wants to know, how did Tony feel about the commentator booth being so tight and cornered with the rings and who was the blonde pushed against Dusty?
1: All right. Uh good question. Thanks for it. I didn't like it. It, it looked awkward that they would spill out and we had our back to them. Because it, it, I think you would agree by watching that. And you see Heenan trying to move out of the way. The blonde was a young lady named Annette Yother. Okay, who will very much come into play in WCW and Eric Bischoff down the road? Remember that name because she becomes a very important player in us down the road. And that's all I'm going to say. you got to listen to a podcast when we go to later years. Okay?
0: Uh, CBFL on Twitter wants to know Did the dream and the brain get along? They seem very snippy with each other the entire show.
1: No, they got along greatly. It was all part of the characters, all part of what they did.
0: Uh, being from Chattanooga, I'm interested if Tony has any good Pez Watley stories. That comes to us from Ethan on Twitter.
1: Uh, remember when he uh, Pez Watley became uh, Shaska Watley? No. Okay. Uh, back years ago in the old Mid Atlantic area, he became he turned a heel on uh, Jimmy Valiant and became. Shaska Watley. Okay. Uh, And that was based on uh, a TV show or a a made-for-TV movie about uh, the tribal king in Africa called called Shaka. But he called himself Shaska Watley. And he and Tiger Conway Jr. became a team. Uh, Pez was a good guy. Really good guy. Uh, I was kind of surprised to see him there. Actually, see him walk out. That was kind of old school.
0: Carl Hayes on Twitter wants to know: Did you ever call a Medusa Sherry match? They put on so many classics in the AWA, but I don't recall if Tony ever called one.
1: I don't. I don't remember calling. I I, I called a Medusa match. I think uh, in my hotel room. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm just I'm just furthering the bullshit on on social media here.
0: You know what? There are more questions, but we're going to end on a high note because I don't think we'll beat that one. We're going to be back next week here, uh, but we want you to go ahead and vote on the show and then stay tuned if you're following us and we will have a follow-up question for you and an opportunity for you to pick our brain about whatever wins. Now, what might win next week? We're going to continue our year by year, show by show breakdown and uh, give you guys an opportunity to take a peek and see what you want to hear about 1997. Of course, you can go here. NWO sold out. It is available now in the archives uh, for your enjoyment. But let's go ahead and throw up Super Brawl 7. That is pull option number one this week. This is a card that on top has Hogan and Piper. Uh, That is a world title match. is taking place in San Francisco, California at the Cow Palace. Underneath the tag titles, we've got Luger and the Giant taking on the Outsiders. In a San Francisco death match, we've got Benoit and Kevin Sullivan. Jeff Jarrett takes on Steve McMichael. The Public Enemy take on Harlem Heat and the Faces of Fear. Eddie Guerrero and Chris Jericho for the United States Championship. DDP and Buff Bagwell square off. The TV title is on the line for Prince Ikea and Rey Mysterio. Six is working with Dean Malenko for the Cruiserweight title. And then we've got a six-man luchador match with Conan, Leparco, and Villano taking on Hooventude, Supercalo, and Ciclope. Super Brawl 7 is poll topic number one. What do you remember most about Super Brawl 7, Tony?
1: Well, you said fill up these, and that made me fill up. Okay.
0: Uh, next up, we have got Slambury 1997. We're almost to the 20-year anniversary of this show. Uh, this is the famous one that a lot of you have heard about what happened afterwards in the main event. It was a six-man with Flair, Piper, and Kevin Green taking on the NWO's Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and Six. We've got Steve McMichael taking on Reggie White. That's right, the football player. Uh, the Steiner brothers are going to take on Conan and Hugh Morris. We've got Ming and Chris Benoit in a death match. That sounds fun, doesn't it? U.S. title on the line for Malenko and Jeff Jarrett. Glacier taking on Mortis... Yes, that actually happened. Uh, <laughs> Rey Mysterio is in action. We've also got Medusa and Luna Vachon, Lord Steven Regal and Ultimo Dragon. It's a fun card. It's Slambury 1997. That is poll option number two. What stands out to you the most on that one, Tony?
1: Uh, two things stand out uh, to me is the fact that we got the rub from a couple of great football players. We were always looking for that uh, crossover rub, and we got it there. And, of course, Uh, What happened backstage uh, and the fight that happened backstage uh, is pretty memorable as well.
0: Yeah, also memorable, Bash at the Beach 1997. Memorable because Dennis Rodman is in a wrestling ring tagging with Hulk Hogan. Uh, But Carl Malone's not there. That would be next year. Instead, we're taking on Lex Luger and the Giant here. We've also got Piper and Flair in a singles action. Scott Hall and Randy Savage are in a tag team against DDP and Kurt Henning. We've got Jeff Jarrett and Steve McMichael, Chris Benoit, and Kevin Sullivan in a retirement match. A six-man luchador match with Huventude, Hector Garza, and Lizmark Jr. Uh, Psychosis, Philano, and La Parca on the other side. Great Muda tagging with Masahiro Chono to take on the Steiner Brothers, Chris Jericho, and the Ultimate Dragon. That's right, he's Ultimate here. Mortis and Wrath taking on Glacier and Ernest Miller. What an interesting year 1997 was. And Bash the Beach, no exception. What do you remember most about Bash of the Beach 97?
1: Well, I remember two things. I remember, number one, looking at that card and saying, wow, there's a lot of talent here. And there was. And number two, I remember during the six-man luchador match, uh, one of those guys taking a bump and Dave Meltzer falling out of their ass and landing on the mat. Really? Yeah, it actually happened. Wow, well, that'll be fun. Yeah
0: next up uh last but certainly not least fall brawl 1997 it's the night that uh, wcw killed north carolina according to <laughs> rick flair in the main event you've got the nwo buff bagwell kevin nash six and conan taking on the four horsemen chris benoit steve mcmichael rick flair and the newly anointed arn anderson spot kurt henning Uh, They are in the main event, the War Games match. Right before that, we got Luger and DDP taking on Scott Hall and Randy Savage in an ODQ match. The Giant is in action against Scott Norton. Wrath and Mortis take on the Faces of Fear. Jeff Jarrett is in action against Dean Malenko. Alex Wright is defending his title against Ultimo Dragon. Uh, The Harlem Heat are in a challenge against the Steiner Brothers. And Eddie Guerrero opens the card against Chris Jericho. Fall Brawl 1997, what a year 1997 is. We've got so many other great shows in 1997 I can't wait to cover, but those are your four topics. So let's recap quickly. Fall Brawl 1997 is poll topic number four. Uh, poll topic number three is uh, the very famous Bash at the Beach, very famous because Dennis Rodman is in the main event. Uh, and then the month, or two months prior to that, Slamboree. Everybody remembers the Piper Nash situation. Slam Bree 97, poll topic number two. And the first one we're going to cover is Super Brawl 7. Of those three, which one stands out to you the most, Tony? What do you think would be the most fun to go back and revisit?
1: I think it would be a lot of fun to go back and revisit. uh, I think it would be great to go back and revisit Fall Brawl. Basically, uh, kind of relive the comments by... By Ric Flair, the the one that killed the Carolinas, but also because uh, Eddie Guerrero and Chris Jericho opened up the show. To me, that's worth the price of admission.
0: So there you go. Go ahead and throw us a vote down right now at WHW Monday on Twitter. We'd love to have some interaction with you on Twitter as well. He is at Tony Shavani twenty four. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. Don't forget to pick up a brand new shirt. We've got all kinds of new fun stuff over there right now at prowrestlingtees.com forward slash WHW and whenever you pick up a shirt, Tony is going to call and thank you. Uh, But maybe most of all, don't forget to check out blueapron.com forward slash Tony. Your first three meals are free and you get free shipping. How can you beat free food with free shipping? You can't. Cruise on over. It's blueapron.com forward slash Tony. You're going to be glad you did. And uh, Tony, I can't help but notice when I look, it feels like it's, it's about that time.
1: It is about that time. And Conrad, let me say... Oh, wait a minute. It's now a 65-man World War III Battle Royal coming out from behind the curtain. First of all, here's Bruce Pritchard. Oh, his face is red. What the hell? And now Dave Meltzer behind him. And here comes Conrad Thompson waddling in from the back. Mark Madden is coming in. Oh, look at Mark. He makes Conrad look skinny. And now Medusa. Medusa has come in. So we've got five more. Wait a minute. Bruce Pritchard and Dave Melter are in a fight before they get to the ring. Conrad and Mark Madden are doing the belly bump outside. I'm going to take Medusa and we're going to go back to the hotel room. We're out of time on What Happened When Monday. See you next week on the MLW Radio Network. The rule of MLW Radio never stops.